Next on Book TV's Afterwards, Michael Malice reports on the far-right movement and its origins. He's interviewed by the Federalist's Ben Dominich. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Michael Malice, you are the author of The New Right. What is The New Right? Uh, let me see if I get the definition exactly correct. It's on page four of the book, I believe. It is, the New Right is a loosely connected group of individuals united by their opposition to progressivism, which they perceive to be a thinly veiled fundamentalist religion dedicated to egalitarian principles and intent on world domination via globalist hegemony. The New Right is not a term that you hear thrown around all that much in the media today. What you typically hear more about is the alt-right, at least in recent years. What's the distinction between the two? Uh, the alt-right is a subset of the New Right. The alt-right would be the members of the New Right who view race uh, as the most important or one of the most important issues in discussing uh, sociopolitical thought. Of framing for conservatism and the right generally in America is backwards looking, nostalgia, a return to the past, the 1950s, or those type of values. How is the new right different from that? Oh, that's a great question. First of all, I always want to point out to conservatives that whenever AOC and all those types. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Correct, the congresswoman from um, New York. When they talk about how under Eisenhower the tax rates, marginal tax rates were over 90%, make sure to remind them that you are the ones who want to bring us back to the 1950s. Uh, conservatives have a misguided nostalgia because nostalgia in general is a deceptive emotion. When we look back at our own past, right, we think about, oh, it was so fun then. But there were also a lot of bad times. There were stomach aches, there were headaches, you know, insomnia. We don't remember that. So nostalgia is a tricky emotion. And conservatives do the same thing with American history because there's this idea that at a certain point, let's say the 50s or 40s, things were great, and then the left, you know, turned crazy and, and changed. And what I demonstrate in the book is that progressivism has been a very straight line from the contemporary times back to Carrie Nation, Woodrow Wilson, uh, the founding of the university system and how it became designed intentionally to have this elite that's going to run America. So it has been a straight line through and it is a myth of conservatism that at some point things were good and that became corrupted. And that's one of the essential elements of conservatism, this idea that we've fallen away from an earlier, purer state. One of the things that I want to talk about before we get into the details of your book is the trend lines that we've seen in recent years in terms of the intellectual argument on the right. The uh, the national nationalist movement, the sort of uh, the strain of conservatism that rejects libertarianism, yes. believes that it's be become too libertarian on the yes. right. Is that something that's part of the new right as well? Absolutely. So this that definitely traces its roots back to, at the very least, Pat Buchanan's 1992 campaign, and to some extent Ross's, Ross Perot's 1992 campaign as well, uh, and has roots far earlier going back to you know, Charles Lindbergh, America First, and, and the, what was called the old right. So this is not only resurgent within American right-of-center thought, it's certainly very prevalent in Europe and in many countries around the world, uh, and, and basically the left does not know what to do about this other than paint them all as effectively Nazis. I was interested to read a recent comment from Yuval Levin, obviously one of the most prominent conservative intellectual voices now at the American Enterprise Institute, the founder of National Affairs, uh, who was participating in this national conservatism conference, uh, something that I think raised the eyebrows of a number of different folks. 
but he himself said that he thought conservatism had become in recent years far too economistic, uh, far too libertarian, and that it needed to reorient itself toward social and cultural issues as being the prime aim that they are trying to solve via a lot of different things, but including government. Is that consistent with the new right? Um, no, I would say it's not really consistent with the new right. The new right, again, is united by their opposition to progressivism. So there would be certainly some social conservative elements, specifically the trad cons, the traditional conservatives, but there'd be far more uh, right-wing than what he is espousing. And any time you're dealing with a mindset that is about engagement with the left and working within the system, well, that is what the new right is against. Progressivism, defining in terms of our terms, do you view it as something beginning and, and arising out of the turn of the last century, Woodrow Wilson and the like, or has it taken on a different character more recently than that? Oh, it certainly has changed over time. I, what I trace in the book is that in many ways it is a degeneration of the social gospel. The social gospel is a movement at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and the principle of the social gospel was instead of a salvation being a function of the individual soul, salvation is a function of a nation. And this is why you have things like no platforming uh, and having people driven off the Internet. Basically, the idea is these people have to be banished from the face of either the nation or the earth because they cannot be, you know, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So it's a very direct line from that. In fact, the, the book, um, In His Steps, uh, which is where the premise, What Would Jesus Do, comes yeah. from, right, which is one of the seminal uh, social really gospel popular. books. Yeah. Very popular. If you read that book, which I recently did, uh, the premise is there's a city, town rather, and everyone goes through this movement where they ask themselves, what would Jesus do, right? And very conveniently, Jesus happens to agree with whatever they happen to be thinking. And one man is a newspaperman, and in his newspaper, he decides to stop having ads or articles about boxing, because that's barbaric and Jesus wouldn't discuss it. And it's a straight line from that to contemporary, you shouldn't be giving a platform to certain individuals, certain ideologies, because that's giving them legitimacy. It's just a very, very direct line, although they don't even realize what the origins of this kind of mindset are. Uh, a passage from your book, the left's exploitation of the Overton window is a major explanation for how progressivism increased its control over society despite ostensible conservative opposition. Explain that for me. Sure. The Overton window is the concept that what can be discussed freely in polite society at any given point in time. So in the 1800s, you could, with polite society, discuss you know, the benefits of slavery. Nowadays, you'd be run out of town on a rail, and correctly so. Uh, how the Overton window, window works is this. Let's suppose you have a number from 1 to 10, uh, and the left would be 10, conservatives would be 1. The left screams 10, conservatives, using the National Review slogan, stand athwart history, yelling stop. They compromise at 5. Well, the next election, you have 5 to 15, 15, which would have been unconscionable a few years ago, and this ratchets further and further to the left. Um, so any time, and I always say conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Um, all, or virtually all, of the great progressive accomplishments are now touted and boasted as essential to conservative thought 20 years later. And in fact, Richard Eli, who was Woodrow Wilson's mentor, uh, one of the major founding fathers of progressivism and a truly uh, despicable human being who said, well, we shouldn't encourage the masses to rise up and make them happy in where they are. The last chapter of his autobiography is called, I Believe in Equality of Opportunity. So th the cons conservatism at its best is about studying history and learning the lessons of history. Sadly, many contemporary conservatives haven't actually done their homework. So the, uh, the modern progressive movement 
obviously, as you say, has, has changed from, from uh, this original Wilsonian view. Uh, how much has that changed the character of the American culture war experience? We talk in the past about culture war issues like the issue of abortion, stretching back to Roe v. Wade in the 70s, uh, you know, a number of other issues that have, uh, that have trended upwards and downwards over time. You know, think about the arguments over what we see on TV that happened in the 1990s, over rap music, over all these other things. How much has that shift to the culture war helped activate the new right? Uh, I think what has happened was not a shift so much as an awareness that there is a culture war going on. In 1992, very famously, at the Republican National Convention, Pat Buchanan got up on stage and said, we are engaged in a culture war. And everyone lost their minds, including many Republicans, gasped. Uh, Mario Cuomo, who was governor of New York at the time, said, culture, what does that mean? That's the word they used in Nazi Germany, because obviously Nazi Germany is the only place where culture was discussed. Let's, let's, let's be <laughs> real, you know, uh, having the same intellect as his son. Um, and what happened is you would have three and then maybe four networks, and you would think that there is a disparate, uh, disparate opinion across them, but they're all hardcore leftists preaching hardcore leftist idea with a straight face and a suit. Thanks to social media, thanks to the internet, increasingly there was an awareness, wait a minute, this is not uh, an, a diff ability to choose between, it's just different poisons. So the new right very much is about ripping the mask off. And again, we're talking about, we all learn in school about yellow journalism. You know, uh, William Randolph Hearst, you know, the Spanish-American War. At what point did it stop being yellow journalism and start being decent, objective journalism? And that is something that's never discussed in school, and that's something the New right focuses on. There's been a sort of uh, an anti-elite undercurrent uh, in uh, the right that is focused on in a number of different books, and not just ones from the right perspective. You know, obviously, Chris Hayes and Twilight of the Elites and, and a bunch sure. of these other things. Uh, how much of this, uh, of the New right, is a rejection of the elite generally, the elites of both sort of ideological coalitions and their leadership over the past several decades. Oh, yeah. A great deal of it is about a repudiation of self-described elites and self-selected elites, uh, one of the points. But there's also something called the circulation of the elites. James Burnham, who was one of the early National Review people and probably the earliest point where the National Review conservatives and the New Right would have agreement, had a great book called The Machiavellians. And he talked about four kind of old school thinkers. And one of the concepts within there was the circulation of the elites, meaning when you overthrow an elite, you're not going to have egalitarianism. You're just going to have a new elite. And to put that into realistic terms, what that means is Hillary Clinton will always have more in common with George W. Bush than she will with, a, let's say, a janitor who had always voted Democrat, unlike her, all his life. So having this awareness that there is going to be someone in power and awareness of hierarchy is a, a very right-wing thought, uh, but be something that the new right is of two minds. There's some who are against this and some who are like, all right, there's going to be a hierarchy. It might as well be us. I'm more interested in the cultural side of this, but we shouldn't uh, ignore the policy argument. Sure. Uh, there's obviously policy differences within uh, the right that are adjudicated in all sorts of different ways. Where does the new right come down in terms of their policy priorities as it relates to the federal government? They are completely all over the map. So there is absolutely no agreement across this subculture other than who the enemy is and what the nature of the enemy is. There's those who are favor an authoritarian police state. There are those who are complete anarchists. 
and you have every, there are those who are internationalist in the sense of, you know, I'm going to be a citizen of the world, not in the leftist sense, but in the sense of I don't own allegiance to a particular nation. And there are those who are America first, very proud Americans, we're going to take our country back. So across this, you're going to have very little agreement other than who you are against. And that's what's interesting, because the press would like to, everyone to be painted with the same, you know, neo-Nazi fascist brush. Whereas when you set down the people in this group and say, well, what do you actually want? You have some types who are actually in favor of returning monarchy, uh, not just any monarchy, but a descendant of the Stuarts. Uh, so it's, it's really hilarious what, when you deal with any subculture, uh, how many different factions there are. And people on the right think that the left is a monolith. Well, you have the Hillary types and the Bernie Sanders types and the Jill Steins. They genuinely loathe each other. The, uh, the Pat Buchanan element of yes. this. You already mentioned his 1992 speech. Uh, that speech was decried by a lot of different people, not just people on the left, oh, as you mentioned Cuomo. Um, and it was often held up as a standard uh, or as an explanation for why uh, George H.W. Bush lost his reelection, uh, that type of thing. I don't think actually when you get into the data there's a strong argument for that. But the point is Buchanan became someone who was a fairly vilified figure on the, on the right after having been fairly popular in the past. Sure. He was a Nixon man originally, of course. Uh, but by the time that, you know, uh, he was uh, rolling around in the Reform Party, he was being dismissed out of the movement, not just by national Absolutely. review, uh, but in fact by the current president, Donald Trump. And Rush Limbaugh. And Rush Limbaugh and others as well. Chart me this arc of how Buchanan goes from being sort of someone who's vilified and rejected, including by people on the right, someone who's now viewed in your own sort of terminology as being a prophet of what was to come. Yeah, Buchanan is a very interesting figure and I trace his trajectory in contradistinction to Murray Rothbard who he teamed up with in the 1992 campaign. Murray Rothbard, who's far less known, was an anarchist and a libertarian. So Roth, uh, Buchanan basically was Richard Nixon's first hire when Nixon, former vice president, former failed presidential candidate, was considering a run for president in 68. Uh, and he wrote Nixon's toast to Mao. Uh, he was there when Nixon was fomenting the drug war and so on and so forth. And he was regarded as this kind of old school, hard right type of figure. Um, but he became a bit anathema as National Review became more, let's say, cosmopolitan in their perspective. Uh, William F. Buckley denounced him as an anti-Semite for some pieces that Buchanan had written and wrote a book about him called uh, In Search of Anti-Semitism. So, you know, but many of these arguments against Buchanan are used uh, in contemporary terms against President Trump by many of the same people or at least their intellectual um, descendants. So it's uh, the parallels between 92 and 2019-2020 are very close and again it's the same split between the populist blue-collar right and you know the more urban coffee club, to use a derogatory uh, term, right. And this has happened, just one thing I want to point out about the 92 election. Uh, conservatives are supposedly big on looking at the data. Well, the data shows that every time from 1970, excuse me, 68 through 2016, every time they have run a right-winger, they have won. Every time they have run a centrist, they have lost. And that includes George H.W. Bush, who ran in 1998 as Reagan Jr. As a, a right-winger, yeah. And then he goes to the center, raises yeah. taxes, and is defeated in 1992. So the, the new right's priorities as it, as it relates to a reformation of the, of the right coalition, what does that look like? Because there is uh, this debate going on about which people, you know, the, the Republican Party ought to reach out to or the, the, the ideological right should orient itself towards. Uh, and, you know, for uh, in the wake of the 2012 election, for instance, 
there was a whole autopsy that was looking at the different people they ought to reach out to, how they ought to reach out to them. And obviously, what ended up winning for them in 2016 was a fundamental rejection of that autopsy and the kind of coalition that it necessarily uh, presented as a hypothetical. Does the new right have a clear idea of how they'd like to remake the, the coalition of the right? Yes, and it, it is in terms of not worrying about Washington and realizing where the poisoning starts. So Andrew Breitbart, the late Andrew Breitbart, had that quote that politics is downstream from culture. Mm-hmm. So very often Republicans and conservatives broadly will look at Washington, it'll be wonks, and the new right would argue by the time you're dealing with politicians in Washington, the battle's over because you have uh, people going through public education, you have them going through universities and then getting their information from the corporate press. So by the time it's a political discussion, you're in the fourth quarter, you're down 50 points. So building the coalition is about fighting Hollywood, it's about fighting the media, it's about especially denigrating the universities, which is the last step of the progressive stool. And basically it's not at all an embrace of Republican politics or regarding Republican victories as any sort of guarantee of uh, fixing this country. One of the people who has newly arrived in Washington is the youngest uh, member of the U.S. Senate, Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri. Uh, He is the first uh, uh, millennial uh, uh, senator in terms of of, uh, his age. He's also one who's breaking with the orthodoxy of the right on a number of different fronts, most prominently on technology in Silicon Valley. But one of his more recent proposals has to do with universities. He would basically demand uh, a number of different steps from them in order to sort of make people whole if they were, uh, if they were defaulting on their student right. debt. Uh, he has a number of other proposals along those lines. He also seems to express a willingness to look at taxing uh, their endowments and, and a number of other steps. Right. Do, you think those, do you think of those steps as being uh, implicitly part of the new right? Oh, yeah. Anytime you have any attack on the universities, this is very much right-wing thinking. You're right thinking. Uh, my personal argument has been to seize all university endowments and distribute that money as reparations because those endowments are the crystallization of privilege. So it's thinking in terms of things that, like, uh, Mitt Romney would find unconscionable and anathema. Uh, and it's a lot of, okay, let's take these radical ideas, and even if we're not going to advocate for them, A, they'll move the Overton window because now we're discussing radicalism and pushing things in a certain direction, and B, it's encouraging people to think critically and outside the box. Uh, one of the other essential elements of new right thought is what people call red pilling after that documentary, The Matrix, meaning once you take that red pill, you are understanding that what is presented to you as fact in the media and entertainment and in politics is, in fact, a carefully constructed narrative designed to manipulate and control you and limit preemptively your options of thought. So the new right has been depicted, I would say, uh, in the mainstream media, or I should say, I think the old corporate media. The corporate press. Well, the reason, um, let me just interrupt you, please. Yes. The reason it's always corporate press and not mainstream media is because these people are not mainstream. This is an radical ideology intent on complete control of American culture. So their depiction is typically just as these are a bunch of racists. Right. Why is that wrong? Uh, well, it's not wrong because people use language differently, and for them, racism means that which is not progressive. I have a list in this book of things that have been described as racist in the, in the press, including peanut butter and jelly, milk, talking to minorities, not talking to minorities, moving into minority neighborhoods, moving out of minority neighborhoods, noticing other races, not noticing other races. And in fact, there's a great um, tweet that someone said, just put into Google, is blank racist, whatever word you want, and see if there's going to be some think piece about it. And inevitably, things like swimming pools, parks, bubblegum are all regarded as racist. So one of the focuses on the new right is 
if you left, let the left define terms and racism is one of their big tactics and you say, well, no, I'm not a racist, right away you're seeking their approval and these are people who are not engaging in good faith. Uh, and in fact, one of the other things I point out in the book is they always, you know, now it's gone from racist to neo-Nazi, white supremacist, fascist. Far more white supremacists and white nationalists died fighting the Nazis than did urban feminists. So even historically to conflate these two groups is inaccurate. You, uh, you view this through a couple of different lenses, and you have a number of figures throughout the book. You've mentioned a couple of them in Buchanan and Rothbard. Who are some of the other critical historical figures in this progression and the growth of the new right? Oh, uh, I would certainly say Ayn Rand, uh, the famous novelist. She was a pre precursor to this idea. But I think the two, um, it's, it's not a um, figurehead-driven movement. There are many people I discuss in the book, Ann Coulter, uh, the, the racist Jared Taylor, um, uh, Mike Cernovich, Milo, uh, people like uh, Jim Goat, I would call the godfather of New Right. He was a heretical thinker uh, and still around to this day. But it is very much um, more of an Al-Qaeda uh, cell structure than having this kind of, these are the ten leaders, and if you take them out, then this movement is going to go away. The corporate press would like to paint it as, this is the Trump phenomenon, mm -hmm. or, well, we got rid of Milo, so therefore this movement's done. And it's not about either of these men. It's much more populist in its uh, formation than uh, it has. And this is a function of social media. This would not have been possible 20 years ago. Is the president a part of the new right? Uh, uh, well, he's on the cover of the book. Yes. So I, I, don't, I don't know if he would identify as a member of the new right, I, I don't know how he views progressivism, or if he views, is he's that much well, then intellectual. Let me ask this a different way. Is he instinctually aligned with them? Oh, um, certainly. Uh, the, the way he treats his opponents with complete contempt and dismissal is an uh, intentional new right tactic, whether he uses it intentionally or not. When he trolls people and forces them to drop their veneer of respectability and act like loons, that is a new right tactic. How dangerous is the new right as it relates to the existing uh, corporate and, and media and think tank reality uh, in terms of how Washington has worked? For uh, not dangerous enough yet, so hopefully they'll turn the dial up to 11. Is part of that organic kind of nature of their system that they don't have so many alternate institutions to use instead? Well, and the, the problem is since you're united by opposition, it's very hard to build an institution because all you're agreeing about is, okay, those people are bad, but what do you want? Well, you're not going to get anywhere. We're seeing this actually in, in England. So Brexit passes. You know, there's a, a small margin, but a significant margin. Okay, we're going to get out of the EU. Well, what is that getting out of the EU going to look like? And there's, they had seven votes and they couldn't get a majority on any of these options. So yeah, you can get 51% to agree or 50% to agree to a broad idea, but once you start, okay, what's this going to look like, you have seven choices and each of those are going to get 30%. So it is not, uh, it's not very much a governing coalition in that sense. You uh, mentioned the UK, and I wanted to get to that uh, eventually. Uh, to what extent is the new right a particularly American phenomenon, given that we see all of these think pieces and the like suggesting yeah. that what we're seeing is a global rise of sort of nationalism, populism, and the like in, in the wake of financial crises and a lot of other things that have people very upset. Uh, I, I think it's, it would be very convenient for people to see, you know, um, Glenn Greenwald had this great visceral attack on the New York Times when they were referring to Bolsonaro, uh, who's the new president of Brazil, as the tr Trump of the tropics. And he goes, he's talking about executing people. He's making jokes about, I mean, just the most offensive things and talking about military coups. Trump is not even close to that. So to view everything as a function of uh, the United States 
is very much a premise that people who read The New Yorker subscribe to, but is a very inaccurate one. Because many of these other countries where you're seeing a resurgence of right-wing nationalism, they actually do have fascist and neo-Nazi roots. It's not just a smear from the corporate press. It's a direct line in these parties from nowadays to the 40s and 30s. You, uh, you talk a bit about uh, the sim symbolism of Shea for a number of, of young leftists. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about the effect that uh, sort of an em embrace of that type of ideology on the left has driven more people into the arms of the new right. Well, I think it's more a function of Che Guevara was a huge racist, huge homophobe, mass murderer. He talked openly about wanting to nuke New York. He said that he's a machine driven by hate. These are all you know, quotes of his. And Hillary Clinton named her either cat or dog Che. Uh, people wear the Che shirt all the time, that iconic Che shirt. There's also a Reagan version, which kind of looks pretty cool. Um, and I will defend that because very often... Can I just interject? The mayor of New York also recently got in trouble for quoting Shea in Florida and not having the reaction that he thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um, but I do think it's true that a figure, historical figure, can be divorced from their reality and become kind of this mythic, uh, you know, call to arms. Uh, the New Right has their own corresponding figure who's far less known, who was Pinochet, who was the dictator of Chile from 1979 through the 90s. And he, basically, there was a communist government, and whenever communist governments uh, take place, very quickly mass murder happens as a consequence. He led a military coup against Allende. And what he's uh, known for, and this is very dark humor, but sometimes it's not humor than you write, he took many of these communists up in and innocent people up in helicopters and threw them into the ocean. Yeah. So very often you'll have some corporate journalist on, on Twitter prattling about how you know, Trump's July 4th military parade was exactly like 10 Tiananmen Square. And instead of engaging with them being like, no, you're wrong, the response will simply be the helicopter emoji. The, uh, the sort of Shea Castro uh, fetishization yes. of, some of, these, uh, of some of these violent socialists, um, how real is it and how much is it sort of the equivalent of what a lot of new right trolls sort of do in response to the left? How real is what? How real is that embrace on the left? I don't think it's that. It, well, it depends. You're going to have the ones who are knowingly, the tankies that they're called on Twitter, who are knowingly and consciously embracing this. And then there are the people who are just... The tankies, can you explain I that? mean, people who are like sending the tanks, who okay. are like all, all, all favor, in favor of that. I mean, these are the, the Stalinists, the, the actual Stalinists. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are those who just have no idea. In fact, I, and I've made this point when Castro died... And he died on Pinochet's birthday, ironically enough. And there was a meme where God is talking to Pinochet and says, Augusta, what do you want for your birthday? You know, I think it's wonderful that we live, I was born in the Soviet Union, that we live in a nation where people can be so privileged that they have no idea what living in Cuba means, that they have no idea what living in the Soviet Union means. And it is the fault of the right wing where we are told constantly and correctly about slavery, about Jim Crow, and the Holocaust, that there's not any discussion or very little about what life is like under communism. This needs to be a mantra from the right wing. Reagan and Thatcher end in the Cold War without firing a shot, but we don't hear about it. And this, you can't expect the left to talk about it because the New York Times still, as of this morning, is singing the praises of the Soviet Union, although they covered up Stalin's genocide of Ukraine in the 30s. Uh, why is the right wing not constantly talking about what communism means in practice? It's unfathomable to me. One of the things that's in common between Buchanan, Perot, and President Trump is a rejection of uh, what is typically viewed as the widely held positions of those uh, in the pro-capitalist right yes. in favor of free trade. Yes. What do you view as the kind of trade aspect of this? And is there something about that particularly 
that makes it a new right issue? Or is it something that's happening for different reasons? Well, I think across the new right, you are going, no matter where you have the anarchists, you have the nationalists, or anyone in between, there is going to be a very strong skepticism of international globalist corporations. Uh, so historically, you know, the country club Republicans would be defending corporations, and, and to some extent, understandably so. And now you see how blithely these corporations are putting forth progressive bromides without batting an eye. It's just like, a, uh, regardless of what you think about gay rights, like the, the day uh, you know, Pride Month happens, all their logos turn rainbow. The day Pride Month ends, all their logos go back to normal. And there's a shameless uh, sociopathy to it because whenever there was a kind of something to lose by advocating for gay rights, they were nowhere to be found. And now they will say with a straight face that we're leading the fight when if you go to Times Square, it's rainbows all around. It looks like a Lisa Frank poster. So the idea that, um, uh, you know, there's a big skepticism of internationalism and globalism, and again, that's going to tie in the skepticism of international corporations and their agenda. We live in an era of, of comprehensive digital corporate wokeness. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the kinds of things that you're talking about, you know, where, uh, where organizations, corporations that have nothing to do with the agenda involved kind of try to sidle over and virtue signal for all sorts of different things. Sure. Um, and, you know, for instance, I, I, I honestly wish the NFL, for instance, would spend a little bit more time talking about brain health than they do wearing pink Absolutely. ribbons. Um, but to your point, it seems to me that that's something that's only going to drive people into the arms of the new right because that's a clear split between the kind of chamber of commerce, big business Absolutely. attitude in which that virtue signaling is just something they do to increase their profit and the feelings of many Americans that those embraces or those advocacy sort of things are a declaration of, of uh, picking a side in the culture war. Yeah, I mean, you have to be, think how insular your thinking and your worldview has to be if you would tell your cashiers, who are low-status, low-paid people, to in talk to your customers about race, which is the touchiest subject, perhaps, in American culture. And this is exactly what Starbucks did. Uh, it's Instead of something that everyone could agree on about, let's say, let's talk to them about being kind to each other, or, hey, yeah, I did something nice today, which you would think would be universal. It's, it's instead the most tendacious subject, but from their perspective, it's, it's something that we all agree on. At, at the same time, if you look at it from another perspective, uh, people who are pro-choice, uh, which I would include myself, would certainly say, hey, adoption's a great thing. Uh, you know, we don't want these unwanted kids suffering. This is a, but if you had a Starbucks corporation saying, we should have our cashiers encouraging people to talk about adopting kids. The blowback would be immense. And that just speaks to why this is a totalitarian faith as opposed to a difference of opinion. There's, a, uh, there's an aspect of that corporate wokeness uh, that I think we need to talk about in this context, which is that as we've seen the rise of, of increasingly aggressive progressivism, on campuses, yes. that has started to flow out of the academy, yes. where it's influencing the lives of obviously students and, and professors, and into the corporate sphere, the uh, the, hum uh, the human resources sphere, oh, into the hiring decisions that, that are being made. There are a lot of people in America who are on the right who are concerned about that, but I also feel like there are a lot of apolitical people who are concerned about it, just that they will say the wrong thing in yes. that context. Tell me how much of that's part of this sort of new right phenomenon and that, and that pushback that you've seen to it. Absolutely. So one of the big 
ways that the progressives start to lose is something called Gamergate, where basically the idea became that even in video games, you have to have this kind of progressive ideology. And there's a 1960s expression that says the personal is the political. So many people who are you know, right of center or even left of center or apolitical think, well, I can just live my life and not have to deal about politics in the same way that I personally don't think about sports. And they, what they realize and increasingly realize is there's nowhere for you to escape. Even sci-fi movies, fantasy movies, video games, uh, escapism designed to leave the literal earth. Yeah. Still, you cannot escape this totalitarian fundamentalist faith. And that, to many people, once you see the mask drop and realize they will search you out and make sure that you agree with them, that is what's driving many people to this uh, perspective as opposed to the conservative perspective where it's like, well, no, we're not that bad. Uh, that, that just means you're going to be the ones who are shot last. Corporate media uh, tends to like to run with a certain type of story, which sure. I'm sure you've seen many examples of. Many where, such cases. Where they will, where they will, uh, there'll be some new announcement, mm -hmm. a casting decision, for instance. Yes. Disney uh, recently, you know, uh, cast a young African American, I believe, actress uh, as as the next Little Mermaid in their live uh, action. Sure. Uh, it, since they have to make the same ideas and stories over and over and over again. Sure. And there were a couple of stories out there including a couple from major media sites, uh, about a supposed backlash against this casting. Right. And yet the examples that they would use were typically tiny Twitter accounts or social media postings from individuals, not some kind of organized pushback or petition campaign or anything of right. the like. How much is are things like that contributing to the feelings that people have about basically that their opinion is is always going to be inflamed or built up to be a much bigger thing than it is. Yeah, the great contrarian H.L. Mencken once said that the average man does not want to be free, he simply wants to be safe. So one of the ways progressivism dominates is by creating this impression that all right-thinking are progressive. People are progressives, right? So they will have these articles and they'll say, look, if you disagree with what everyone's thinking, you're a freak, you're an outsider. The average person doesn't want to be picked out because like a school of fish, if you're picked out, you're a target. You want to fit in. So very quickly, this is a very subtle technique of getting people to fall in line. Um, and the insanity of this uh, kind of approach is Will Smith was recently attacked for being cast as Serena Williams' dad because he wasn't dark-skinned enough. This is an extremely racist uh, uh, mentality that has its roots at least to the 1930s and earlier, uh, something called colorism. There was a book called uh, The Black of the Berry by Wallace Thurman where he discussed there was these uh, uh, very bourgeois social clubs for African Americans where they literally had a paper bag test. And if you were darker than a paper bag, you were not being allowed to uh, um, be a member. And again, this talk this is, goes to my thesis about how progressivism has been a very hierarchical, elitist, straight line from contemporary times through, in this case, the 30s and earlier. Uh, you, we have not yet talked about foreign policy. Sure. Does the new right generally have a, uh, a consistent thrust when it comes to some of the foreign policy that, yes. that we've had in recent years? Bring the troops home and shut down the bases. It is extremely uh, anti-interventionist. It is very anti-war. Um, is, that is another very big unifying uh, thesis. And since their arch enemy is Woodrow Wilson, uh, the, you know, the first president who went to Europe as, as president, and this idea that America has to be involved in every, every, every kind of nation state, every continent, this is the exact opposite, that we have to worry about America first, but also probably second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth. Um, so that is very much a new right uh, perspective. And thankfully, what the new right has done is brought 
this respectability to the uh, anti-war perspective on the right wing, which has historically and sadly been discarded by the hard left. One of the challenges with doing foreign policy from a perspective that is naturally, uh, not, let's not say anti-war, but war-averse, which sure. I think is a, a, a good description of, of President Trump. He yes. obviously said, was opposed to the stupid wars and yes. that kind of thing. Yes. He seems more willing to consider troop deployments closer to home, yes. you know, something like Venezuela. Um, it, it, part of the difficulty of that is that the people who have come up through the foreign policy establishment and become part of it uh, are almost always people who are more globally minded. Oh, yes. Uh, and that I would include, you know, uh, obviously John Bolton yes. in that uh, and a number of other people who are currently working for or advising the president. How can the new right change the foreign policy makeup of the sort of people who are in the positions of power to make these types of determinations? Yeah, I, I often say that the, uh, the establishments, and by, by establishment I include the corporate press, the establishment's bloodlust for war cannot be overstated. When President Trump bombed Syria, that was, oh, he's presidential for the first time he's presidential. They equate war with being presidential. This is why Reagan and Thatcher don't get the respect they deserve, because when they won the Cold War, there weren't any bodies, and this is a problem. Uh, we want corpses everywhere. Uh, and it's very, very, you know, we talk about, I said earlier about the yellow journalism, Spanish-American war. It's been a drumbeat for a century. Uh, war, 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 we want as much war as possible. Uh, as for controlling Trump and, you know, Washington and having his appointees, they have very little impact. But in terms of uh, having the extreme criticism of the war machine in, you know, discourse, this is something the new right is doing very well. This is why of the Democratic candidates, they love Tulsi Gabbard so much because she is the most anti-war candidate on the left. Um, and it's just a function of, and this is something that President Trump is very good about. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for The Observer a few years ago, meaning if you have a president who is revered and esteemed and, you know, treated highly on a pedestal like Obama, people are going to be a lot less skeptical of when he's sending our troops overseas, which means people are dying, including, you know, foreign citizens, which, you know, maybe secondary to American concerns, but certainly is a concern. Whereas if you have a president who is regarded as a lout, it's going to be a lot harder for him to pull off having this kind of war. And that is, uh, in the eyes of the new right, a very good thing. Does the success or failure of the new right depend on Donald Trump's oh, re-election? Not in the slightest. And it didn't even depend on his election. Uh, this is where the corporate press and the progressives get it wrong. They think it's about Trump. Trump is great. There's an enormous amount of skepticism, and always has been, um, uh, from the new right towards Trump. He's not an ideologue. Uh, they regard him as a wrecking ball. They regard him as a source of great humor. They regard him as a great person in terms of dropping the mask from the left and its nature. But in, term, where's, but in terms of accomplishments, where's the wall? Uh, where are the tanks in Harvard Yard, as mentioned, Moldbug advocated? Uh, none of this stuff is getting any closer to fruition. So uh, he's good in terms of what he takes down, but in terms of you know, putting forth their policies, I, they would say he's a big disappointment. You have uh, the rare distinction in this book of probably being the first person to quote both Murray Rothbard and Louis C.K. in the same <laughs> form. Tell me a little bit about the. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you see in the world of comedy, one that I know you pay a lot of attention to, sure. um, where we've seen a number of people there express views that almost sound like they're the you know the canaries in the mine shaft for the culture war. You know, uh, comedians who are certainly not of the right in any Absolutely. conceivable term, uh, and yet uh, and yet despite their politics 
are sounding notes of real concern about what they see within the world of comedy, and frankly, the, the strain toward anti-comedy is something that should be supported. Yeah, there is one of the great ways to, uh, the new right uses comedy is that so much of the evangelical left is about sanctimoniousness, piousness, holier than thou, we're the anointed good people. Thomas Sowell has this great book called The Vision of the Anointed, and you guys are not just wrong, but you're bad and evil people, and we're here to save you from yourselves. It's domesticated imperialism in many senses. So when you have social media being used to mock, denigrate, and humiliate these types, as opposed to engage with them and argue about the policies, it's a very effective technique. And comedy, I mean, this is not something that is original to my thought, has historically been, you know, Lenny Bruce and going all the way back, uh, you know, to the court jester, has been the way to critique those in power, even the Soviet Union, uh, without having to actually have you have that plausible uh, uh, deniability. You know, Reagan and Gorbachev would joke about this. Um, and it's, it's a great, and this is why social media, the social media giants are freaking out. Because I think most people don't appreciate how much existential dread it causes people like Jack Dorsey and, and his higher-ups to see that their uh, uh, app and their, their website is being used in their minds subverted to further ideas that they regard as unconscionable and anathema. Key media figures and whether you think they're part of the new right or not. Tucker Carlson. Oh, he's certainly... See, again, I don't. it would be a function of whether they identify as such, but he's certainly one of their Hall of Fame. Okay, okay. And, and to what do you ascribe that? Someone who, you know, came from a very waspy background, came from, uh, you know, a perspective he, you know, used to call himself a libertarian sure. in many ways, now is sort of espousing uh, views that say... Elizabeth Warren is, is right about so many different sure. things, and we need to pay attention to that. So is that kind of emblematic of, of how the new right process works? I think it's more emblematic of the uh, fact that he treats the left with derision and contempt, and that he also regards them as not, oh, this is a difference of opinion, but these people are out for your personal destruction. So having those kind, that kind of framing is a new right approach. Uh, in terms of a lot of the other things that we talked about here but we haven't touched on yet, you, you mentioned the, the sort of woke corporate agenda aspect of this, but is the new right gay-friendly or not? Because a lot of the different people who we've mentioned in, in terms of this arc are people who uh, were not just strongly opposed to gay marriage, but are strongly supportive of the traditional family unit as oh, yes. being the ideal. Well, you're going to have a complete range. On the one hand, you're going to have the types who are like, yes, we're the ones who are not socially conservative at all. Uh, we're the ones who could bring uh, people who are gay, LGBT, uh, into right-wing thought because uh, if you are, in, let's say, post-progressive and you want mass Muslim migration, uh, that's not going to be very LGBT-friendly. On the other hand, you have this, the tradcons, and this is you know, a certain other type of right-wing, who think there is an agenda by the corporate press to legitimize... Uh, pedophilia and, and, and things like this and to regard it as you know they're trying to turn all our kids into basically this uh, uh, non-sexual or uni um, kind of a demisexual type so you have the complete range of everything in between. What about the trans community? Well I think that there's again this is something that's a very big split there are those who are like whatever you want to do that's fine and there are some who think and this is with some uh, reason that the left will grab onto any community it can at any given moment and use that as a wedge issue to impose their perspective on culture. And here's a, a great example of the trans community. Regardless of what you think of transgender issues, whether you're for them or against them, the fact that it was put over that overnight 
if you were not in favor of transgender bathrooms, you were ready to be read out of polite society. The fact that you had that mechanism in place to put that world, whereas transgender bathrooms are not the most important issue for transgender people. It's being respect in your person. It's not being the victim of violence. You know, it's being safe in your home, being able to talk to your family. The fact that this was the issue and that everyone has to be talking about this specific issue and that, again, this is something we all decided upon and it's one mind, that is the critique of progressivism from the new right. The, uh, and notice how quickly that went in the garbage when that wasn't put over, and now it's something else, and now it's these so-called concentration camps. And right away, we all have amnesia. <laughs> One of the things that comes with the trans agenda is the argument over pronouns. Uh, and we've seen that hit not, uh, not just people who are on the right. In fact, uh, there's examples, most recently a, a professor at, uh, at uh, UC uh, uh, Santa Barbara who uh, was herself a liberal feminist, sure. described herself as being someone on the left, um, just, uh, you know, had an intersectional perspective on a lot of different things, but was also emphatic that a man can't become a woman. Sure. And has heard from all sorts of corners of, of uh, disgust with that uh, scenario. That aspect of this, of this agenda, do you think that that's prodding a lot of people to have a more aggressive and perhaps more new right sympathetic view. I think that's more of a conservative perspective. And, and I also would add to this, notice the head of Planned Parenthood, she was just fired yes. because she was referring to women having reproductive choices as opposed to people with wombs or whatever they wanted to phrase it. Um, I, I think, again, this is a socially conservative thing. It's much more that than a new right um, perspective because, again, when, when this was the issue, you know, like there's fashions, there's clothes, right? Uh, Paul Graham had this great essay called What You Can Say, and he talks about, you know, every year you're going to have fashionable issues. So this is a left-wing issue du jour. So the fact that you are engaging with it as opposed to picking your own issue du jour is much more of a conservative perspective. But there's a broader point here, which I discuss in the book, which is how the left uses jargon as a mechanism to have dominance and social control. And every so often, the slang changes. You can't say illegal alien. And right away, if you use the correct expression, that's a signal to the in-group that you're one of them as opposed to one of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And that, that terminology, that use of language... How have you seen that ramped up in the social media age? Oh, I mean, it, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's very obvious, uh, you know, it moves much faster. It's moved, right. And, and the thing is, you know, there, there's all of these mechanisms that, because you'll have, let's say, you know, Twitter or, or Facebook or something, they'll say, okay, you can't use certain words, right? And then it becomes like Project Runway or Top Chef, where you have these talented people forced to operate under constraints. And the consequences are often creative, but in this case, you don't want people to be creative. So if you say, okay, if you use like the slur, the N-word on this site, you're going to be banned, well, then they just start referring to people of color as N-words. Now, is that really better? Because it sounds more creative and it sounds more engaging, and now those young people get to so-called stick it to the man and be defiant. So it ends up shooting them in the foot, in my view. The uh, concept of horseshoe theory, explain that for us. Horseshoe theory, which I do not ascribe to and subscribe to and I think is, is kind of silly, is the idea that the far left and the far right are essentially the same, and it's like a big horseshoe, and eventually when they meet, they're indistinguishable. And in this context, it would be something like Gavin McInnes' The Proud Boys being the same thing as Antifa. And any kind of equivocation, in my mind, often tends to be a function of uh, either laziness or someone who hasn't done their homework. That uh, theory, though, is something that I've seen deployed quite a lot. Yes. And particularly, I think it's being deployed... Uh, in the context of the political, where you can see, you know, some uh, people, you know, because of the anti-war views, for example, sure. you know, supporting someone, not just like Gabbard, but other people who might be war uh, critical, yes. while having very leftist domestic policy views. Does horseshoe theory 
at, where do you see the points where it just kind of breaks down, where it falls apart, and it, and it has sort of an overly simplistic view? Of what's yeah, going one on. of these is like this kind of uh, uh, boomer argument that uh, Stalin and Hitler were basically the same. Well, as a Jewish person, it's very interesting. It was alive. It is very interesting to me to be told that life for me would have been the same under Nazi Germany as it was for my family under Stalin. They're both terrible, but they're terrible in different ways. So that's one example. Uh, another example is this claim that you know both sides are censorious, which is true, but everyone has their own things that they regard as heresy and taboo. This is a universal function of human culture and society. So in terms of how it would apply in terms of practice and what you would glean from it, I find it to be of uh, very little value. Mm-hmm. One thing that seems to me to be consistent, though, about this horseshoe theory argument is that within the corporate media landscape, people on the sort of the new right general's vicinity and people on the uh, sort of anti-corporate left vicinity are both people who, both factions of people who have traditionally been shut out of the conversation that's taking place. When you look at the editorial pages of the major media, you know, landscape, uh, you know, it's notable not just how few voices there are who are in favor of the president, but also how few voices there were prior to 2016 and continue to this day who are critical of the standard Clintonian approach oh, yes. of democratic politics. Is that one example where horseshoe theory is does hold a little bit? And if so, why? Oh, I agree. Yeah. So there is very much this kind of, since they're both outsiders, since they're both heretics in a sense, um, and unorthodox, there is an enormous amount of skepticism on both sides of the extreme right and the extreme left, you want to use the term extreme, towards the establishment and towards the, the, uh, the idea that these are good people or better than us. Uh, and you see it with uh, you know, all the attacks by the so-called squad against Nancy Pelosi, implying that she's a racist. These are attacks that they would use against Biden as well and that they use against President Trump. So there is very much a skepticism, but for any outsider, it's not even just politics of how things are currently run and the belief that, okay, maybe we should tear this down and build something better or not build something better. The, uh, the thrust the, of, of this agenda from both uh, the far left and the far uh, right uh, yeah, and you know, not saying anything about how many people inhabit those, those veins uh, is certainly part of the conversation that we see playing out over and over again in the corporate media but in other places as well about increased polarization in yes. American life. Uh, that there is no escape from the political, that you no longer even can go to a ballpark or a game right. without having to take a position on something Correct. and worrying about who's cheering next to you. Uh, that's something to me that is historically pretty un-American. It's happened before in American history. You know, we shouldn't ignore that. Civil War. Uh, yeah, Civil War absolutely being an example of that. But really in the, in the sort of post-war modern American environment, it seems you know, like that's something that, that stands out as being different from the experience of a lot of people. Do you think that's something that is a permanent trajectory for American life, or is it something that's temporary? Oh, I think it's going to escalate, uh, thanks to social media, as you're encouraged to have your views driven to their logical conclusion. The new right perspective on it is this, that at, with the rise of FDR and basically the complete discrediting of the right wing, and you know, we, Alf Landon, who ran against him in 96, in, excuse me, in 36, you know, was basically a Me Too guy. And for decades, uh, the Republicans were the Me Too party, and they had to be because there was no uh, right of center. I should just interject. You mean Me Too, not in the hashtag. Not in the hashtag, yeah. But that was the old expression, the Me Too Republicans. Barry Goldwater was basically the first, Robert Taft to some lesser extent, 
figure to basically say, okay, we're going to stand for something different. He referred to Eisenhower as a dime store New Deal. And he, his election in 64 was a huge debacle, a huge loss. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson's landslide was unprecedented. So basically, when I guess with the loss of the fairness doctrine, and when you did not have to have two corporately approved perspectives in the rise of Reagan, and you had this increased radicalization, and I don't use that in a negative sense, on the right, that is when the, it was like, all right, now we're going to have two different ideologies, and we're going to encourage people to uh, increasingly self-segregate. And we saw this in the presidential debates, when you had, uh, which would have been unthinkable, in 88, uh, even in 2008, when you had the candidates yelling at the moderators and being like these, Ted Cruz, you know, screaming, these questions are, what kind of questions are these? This is not what people care about. This would never have happened 20 years ago because the perception was the press is objective and honest and good. And now it's the, okay, they have an agenda, not just a bias, an agenda, and they are people we have to grapple with. If you look at the polling data, a majority of the people who actually supported President Trump in 2016, also have views on immigration that are far more moderate than you might expect. Sure. Um, in fact, you know they're open to you know, not just steps on the Dreamers, but a lot of other steps that I think would really surprise some people, given the voices that speak on immigration. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that interacts with the new right. Is this a situation where people are painted into sort of a corner on immigration as a hot button issue, where they feel like they need to take a hard line? Is there a run or gamut of different opinions on the new right? Uh, Ann Coulter is probably the one to, to, who took point on this because her perspective is this. Uh, it makes as much sense for Republicans to be trying to get minority votes, votes as it would be for Democrats to try to get evangelical Christian votes. You go to where the votes are. And her point of view is if you have this uh, open or quasi-open immigration and you have people coming here with no historical background in America, they are going to and data. Uh, points this out, they are going to tend to vote Democrat and, and left-wing Democrat. You see California is the example that they use. So for them, it becomes a function of why are we giving votes to people who aren't going to vote like we like? And they, they, they're, I mean, they're to the right of the Republican Party. It, so to them, it's like this is just a suicide pact. And in fact, the, the left will have you say this kind of idea that demographic change in America is both a conspiracy theory of the alt-right and an inevitability that's going to lead to the destruction of the Republican Party in perpetuity. Yeah. Uh, Coulter is someone who obviously supported the president very strongly and now has become a critic of him because yes. she believes he's failed to live up to his obligations on immigration. Is that a new right phenomenon as well, shared not just by her but by others? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, again, there's always been skepticism from him. The idea that, uh, you know, in Trump we trust is, it was a new right slogan is, is false. They tongue-in-cheek call him a god emperor because they, you know, like that he so-called owns the libs. But there was never, in my view, uh, across the soul spectrum, this belief that he's the one who's going to uh, save this country. Uh, and that, that they also understand, again, because politics is downstream of culture, this is going to be a far longer battle, and it's not going to be a battle that's being held in Washington. It's being held in the universities and the streets. Is this a situation where they value more a president who will weigh in and defend, say, the Covington kids or something like that? than one who's pushing forward some piece of legislation or policy? Well, it would depend on the policy and the legislation, but the Covington kids was a great example because uh, there's an asymmetry. If I sit down and tell we're friends and I tell you 90 truths and 10 lies, you're going to look at me as a liar even though 90% of the time I'm telling the truth. So when you have things like the Covington case and you have the shamelessness of the press urging, you know, basically violence toward these kids who just stood there with the smirk on their face, which is basically, you know, uh, Nuremberg and a hate crime, 
And then when you know the full footage came out, and it's this adult getting his face, there was very little. Oh, oh, oops, we're going to do better next time. And in fact, lawsuits happened uh, as, as a consequence of this. And we saw it again with Kavanaugh and other instances like this. And uh, E. Jean Carroll recently on CNN talking about how rape fantasies are sexy and uh, Anderson Cooper couldn't get to commercial fast enough. So when you have what are called these red pill moments, that realization of, oh, these aren't mistakes. Because you can make a mistake once, twice, but if it's a pattern, at a certain point, that's a behavior and not a mistake. So that is, I think, the, the perspective that... Uh, rather than what President Trump has to say, is that these are the moments that let people realize just how depraved the corporate press is. Mm -hmm. That uh, war with the press that you talk about is one that shows up when you look at the statistics, uh, the levels of decline in faith in the American media, yes. particularly among Republican voters, but also among independents yes. as well, has been steep, and it's been you know something that, uh, that the media really doesn't seem to be able to help its way out of. Right. Let's say that you are in charge of one of these media companies or that you have a significant role within it. What could you do differently? Uh, I think I would have much more varied perspectives. Um, I think I would have a, a kind of a council around me where people would have different points of view. Jonathan Haidt talks about this, having uh, intellectual hetero like heterodox uh, kind of points of view. It would be tough because whenever you're running a corporation in a progressive uh, culture, you're going to have your hands tied by higher-ups and by... Uh, the backlash. So they're in a tough position. I'm not going to deny that. But at the same time, it doesn't need to be as brazen and heavy-handed and shameless as it tends to be. If uh, people, obviously, uh, they can get your books. Yes. For the New Right perspective, the battle is won when the typical corporate journalist is regarded exactly as a tobacco executive. <laughs> the perspective that people can get on the New Right from your book is obviously one uh, that is uh, significant. It's, it's gotten a lot of praise from some very smart people. Uh, but if they were going to look and read other people as well, what, what books should they turn to? What additional tomes would you recommend? Uh, in terms of contemporary books, I don't think there's any. Uh, and that's why I wrote it. I wouldn't write a book that was redundant. I mean, there are many books around this space that basically want to function. Everyone is a function of the Klan, whereas at the very least, the members of this group who identifies Klan's people is virtually nil. Uh, the New York Times recently had a piece, A1, you know, above the fold, about a kid from West Virginia who started watching Ben Shapiro videos and then watched white nationalist videos, and then he's like, I'm not a white nationalist anymore. And this is an anecdote of one data point. This is supposed to be indicative of something. So, I, uh, But in terms of books that provide background to this, I would say definitely the works of Pat Buchanan, the works of Murray Rothbard, the works of Ayn Rand, James Burnham's The Machiavellian is the quintessential text here. Um, and Coulter, who I quote at length in the book, would be the kind of the big ones. Michael Malice's book is The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Ben.